Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. It's lovely to be here to talk about my new book, Jerusalem. I'm going to talk a little bit about why I wrote it, how I wrote it, and a lot more about Jerusalem itself, um, the city of the universal city, the holy city. Now, I've been going to Jerusalem since I was a little boy, and um, a baby almost, um, due to a family connection that I'll talk about in a moment. And Jerusalem has always been a city that I absolutely loved, that fascinated me. And I always wanted, when I became a historian, to write a book about Jerusalem, a history of Jerusalem. But I wanted to find a way to do it in a different way than it had been done before. Now, we all know that there are many, many books on Jerusalem, and you probably have many of them in your libraries. Um, there, are books, there are books that are mainly on four sections of Jerusalem's history. Um, the Crusades, the Israel-Palestine conflict, Jesus period, and King David. In between those periods, very few people know much about the history, and I certainly didn't. I thought I knew a lot about it, because I'd been running around the streets of Jerusalem all my life. But I didn't, and I just, this, this book has been a voyage of discovery for me too. Now, I wanted to do it in a different way. There are many books about Jerusalem, including my introducers, which, of course, is a superb um, example of that. There are many different thoughts of Jerusalem. Some are thematic. Um, some are sort of guidebooks that take you around, say, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and they say the third pillar on the right is Mameluk, the second pillar on the left is Byzantine. Um, there are books about the theology, like Karen Armstrong's book, there are many brilliant books about it. But I wanted to find a book about the people that made Jerusalem and the personality of Jerusalem itself. And I couldn't find this book. Now, Benjamin Disraeli, the British Prime Minister, is one of my heroes. And he visited Jerusalem. He's in my book. He's a character in my book. And he always said, when I want to read a book, I write it. And so, humbly following in his footsteps, I've, t- I've done the same thing. I've written a biography of Jerusalem. Why a biography? Why Jerusalem? Well, first of all, Jerusalem today is ironically more central to the world than it has been for a very long time, perhaps ever. Um, Those of you who know Jerusalem's history will know that there was a time when in Christian theology, Jerusalem was regarded as literally the center of the entire world. And you may well have seen those maps. Um, There's one in my book, for example, from Crusader times, but started really in Byzantine times, that have a huge picture, a picture of the world and a cross. And at the center of that cross is Jerusalem. And at the center of Jerusalem, for Christians, is the church, the Holy Sepulchre. So for many people, it was absolutely central. And for Jews, of course, it's always been central too. But today... If we look at the world today, Jerusalem has virtually never been so important. It finds itself at the crosshairs of virtually all the great conflicts of the 21st century. Um, Fundamentalism versus secularism, Iran versus America, Israel versus Palestine. But the fundamentalist um, conflict is perhaps even more more basic. Um, Those of you who go to Jerusalem will know that there is now there is now huge tension between secular Jews and 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 Haredi Orthodox Jews, for example. Um, secular Jews are often stoned for not keeping the Shabbat, the Sabbath, for, um, on on the weekend. And it's more than that. Even though 
in, in California, in, in London, in Paris, New York, we feel very much that we're living in an increasingly secular world. The numbers of actual, sec- of actual fundamentalist believers, and by fundamentalist I mean believers who believe that the Quran, that the Bible, that the Torah are God-given words, straight from God. Those fundamentalists who believe in the fundamental truth of the Holy Scriptures, the number of those believers in the three Abrahamic faiths is increasing. And all of this is increasing the tension which is being heaped upon the fragile um, stones, the beautiful fragile stones of Jerusalem itself. And so Jerusalem itself is suffering under this intense interest. And more than that, in the secular world, Jerusalem is also the media capital. In the age of 24-hour news, is the media capital of the Middle East. It's the most scrutinized, I would say the most over-scrutinized city in the world. And for all these reasons, Jerusalem is ever more important and ever more insoluble. So these are the reasons that I wanted to write about Jerusalem. So why the biography? Well, those of you who know Christian, uh, Jewish scriptures will know that Jerusalem is often described by the prophets, sometimes um, as a mistress whose lovers have left her, sometimes as a beautiful princess in silks and scarlet robes, but always as a beautiful woman. So I love this idea, and I wanted to write about Jerusalem as a personality. But more than that, I felt that the personal was missing from many of the histories of Jerusalem. Jerusalem's often portrayed as rather a dark, grim, somber place, a place of massacres and bigotry, slaughter, and religious fanaticism. I wanted to show another Jerusalem, too, a Jerusalem of of song, of dance, of music, of women, of love affairs, and of poetry, of literature. And so this book is very much about the other Jerusalem too. And later I'd like to talk about some of those sources that I've used to find this other side of Jerusalem that is less well known. So each, the book is arranged so that each section is, um, is a person. Some of them are people you've barely heard of, like Jesus Christ. Some of them, um, uh, some of them are all Ben-Gurion or Moshe Dayan or, 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 or the Kaiser. And some of them are people that you probably haven't heard of. But they're people that I've chosen. And you know, the lovely thing about writing a book like this is that you really write it for yourself. You don't write it for an audience. You have to be obsessed. You have to immerse yourself in the subject for years to do this. And in many ways, I've been writing, I've been preparing, I've been reading about Jerusalem all my life. And it's been a lifelong fascination for me. You know, the reason why I went to Jerusalem when I was little was because my great-great-uncle was called Sir Moses Montefiore, a slightly forgotten, um, semi-forgotten, quite obscure now, English-Jewish um, character from the 19th century. Now, he was, he was exactly what the Victorian aristocrats and Victorian royal family thought of when they thought what a Jew should be like. In fact, when Queen Victoria saw him, she often used to say, oh, there's Sir Moses Montefiore, she'd write in her diary. What a very grand old Hebrew he is. <laughs> which, which, by the standards of the time, was a compliment. The point was that the, 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 leading, the leading British politicians and aristocrats at that time were many of them philo-Semitic Hebraists, and they believed in direct succession from the Puritans Crom- from Cromwell's time in the 17th century. They believed that the Jews had to return 
to Jerusalem. They had to make Jerusalem Jewish in order to accelerate the second coming. Not unlike American evangelists today who come from the same succession, if you like. And Moses Montefiore benefited from that. Now, his career is interesting for various reasons. He was six foot tall, broad-shouldered, barrel-chested, blue-eyed, fair-haired. And he always wore a yamulka. Now, when other, when other Jews made it in, in Victorian Britain, they generally gave up their Judaism. But he proudly remained an observant Jew, whoever he mixed with. When he received his knighthood from Queen Victoria, he said he was much prouder to see his family banner with his family crest reading Yerushalayim than he was to receive the knighthood and the dubbing of the sword from the queen herself, whom, by the way, he'd known since she was a little girl because she was living in Kent at that time, and his estate was in Kent. And he said, I'm going to, I'm going to invite the young Princess Victoria to use my gardens whenever she likes. And he had her delivered to her house a golden key. And she used this golden key so she could wander through his estate privately. And so she always remembered him. And this was the beginning of quite a close, I wouldn't say friendship, but an acquaintance that was part of the legend of Moses Montefiore. Now, Moses Montefiore in 1860, he'd been to Jerusalem, he went to Jerusalem seven times in all, which in the 19th century was, a, was an incredible achievement. It was quite a dangerous trip, carriage, and by carriage, by ship. He had to have guards, he had to carry pistols. When he went to Jerusalem in the 1820s, Jerusalem was virtually a ruined city. One of the things that it's easy to forget, when you read the headlines in, on CNN, when it says that Jerusalem, the holy city, holy to three faiths, it's easy to forget that at various times of Jerusalem's history, it's been virtually forgotten by all of the three major faiths. In the, when Moses Montefiore went in the 1820s, over the, over the 50 years before, Jerusalem had shrunk there were barely 1,000 or 2,000 people living in the old city. Much of the old city was in fact ruined and was, um, cactuses were growing in, in wasteland. It was a ruined city. And at that time, it was forgotten as much by the Muslims as the Christians. And there were also very few Jews there. At other times in its history, there have been similar periods. In the 13th century, again, Jerusalem was almost empty, and at times almost abandoned, like a, very, like a extremely grandiose monumental village. So it hasn't always been this, this way. The modern development of Jerusalem really begins with the Napoleonic invasion, the end of the 18th century, a nasty little Middle Eastern war. And that was the beginning of the rediscovery of Jerusalem by the West. So when Montefiore went there in 1820s, same time as Disraeli went there, incidentally, Jerusalem was a wreck, a ruin, but it was beginning to come to life again. Now, he started to go back, because when he went there, he was a, he was a gentleman, a self-made English gentleman who happened to be Jewish. Now, he was lucky. He had married the sister of N.M. Rothschild, the first Rothschild. So him and Rothschild were brothers-in-law, and they were in business together. Now, it's said that there's a... That when the Battle of Waterloo was won by the Duke of Wellington, the Rothschilds and Montefiore were very lucky. They had a better intelligence service than the British government. So they found out that the Battle of Waterloo had been won before Lord Liverpool, the Prime Minister. This meant, of course, that they could buy, stock, they could buy um, gilts and stocks 
Now, nowadays, you might get into trouble for this. Um, but in those days, it was perfectly legal, just about. And so that's, that was, according to family legend, that's how he first made his fortune. And the Rothschilds have a similar legend in their family. And the two of them worked closely together. And in fact, they lived in the same um, house together, above the Rothschild bank, then just a bullion trader. So that was the beginning of his fortune. He was an Italian immigrant, and his entire life defies all the cliches about Victorian England. I mean, this was the time of the highest, stiffest, most rigid aristocratic, aristocratic class system. And yet this Jew, born in Italy, not even born in England, was able to end up, grow up by the age of about 40, to be a friend of the, of the Queen, the royalty, and so on. And it defies some of the, as I said, it defies some of the preconceptions one has about Victorian England. But when he went to Jerusalem, he went as an irreligious Jew. He was reborn there, he fell in love with Jerusalem, adopted Jerusalem as his family motto. And in fact, in my house, um, I've inherited some of, his, some of his stuff, some of his cutlery, and all of it, everything he had has Jerusalem written on it. He even had it on his carriage, and even above his bed it said Jerusalem. But at the same time, I said Montefiore brought some of Jerusalem back. Was, this, Moses Montefiore was not a man to hide his light under a bushel. Um, he decided to build himself, he built a country estate with a huge mansion, and he decided to build a rabbinical college there with it. And not only that, but he also decided to build his own synagogue, and more than that, a tomb. And he wanted to build a tomb that he based on Rachel's tomb, which is between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. Some of you may have seen it. It's an amazing white-tombed structure, which he renovated when he visited Jerusalem. And he brought back Jerusalem soil to fill it. And now, bizarrely, in, in, his, in the small town of Ramsgate, which is just a forgotten seaside, um, a bit like Neptune, New Jersey, forgotten seaside uh, resort, um, Housing estates have increased. The, 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 country houses, the country house that he built on the, that he had on the outskirts has burnt down. Um, and all that's left is this bizarre tomb of Moses Montefiore and his wife, surrounded by housing estates with graffiti on it. So a little bit... That's, I must say, it's the weirdest tomb you'll find in all of England. But anyway, that was how I came to know the city. Now, when we were growing up, we kept a connection with Jerusalem... When I grew up, as I said, our family motto was always just... We had no family motto other than just Yerushalayim. And when we had Seder nights, Jewish Passovers, um, the Montefiore family was incredibly formal, Victorian. In fact, many of the family wore top hats or bowler hats um, instead of yarmulkes, but they were far too grand to wear those. And when, they, um, w- when we had the, when we had the, the Seder night, um, we, we and the younger members of the family were constantly being called over to hear about them, how perfect Moses Montefiore was. In fact, we were driven mad by the older members of the family telling us what a saint he was, what a perfect man. Now, more recently, we've discovered a bit more about Moses Montefiore, and we've discovered that like all Victorian magnates, he had a secret life. Now, when he died, his nephew, who was my, his nephew, who was my ancestor, Sir Joseph Seabag Montefiore, burnt all his papers the next day. Always a bad sign. And, um, and more recently, there were many rumors about his private life. But more recently, um, we've learned a lot more about him. And one of the things we've discovered is at the age of 81, 
he fathered a child by a 16-year-old housemaid. Yes, yes. The family, the family was very shocked. The white beards of the elders of the family grew whiter when they heard this. But I have to say that for the younger members of the family at Seder Nights now, they're a lot more interested in Moses Montefiore than we were. But that was the family connection, and it went right through um, to the present time. This book is a work of synthesis. I read all the, the primary sources. I visited all the archaeological sites um, that I could. I immersed myself in the subject, as I said. But there's also some art, new archival materials in here and, some, and, and, and new sources that you probably won't know about, even if you've studied Jerusalem. And one of these is from Montefiore family papers. When Allenby liberated Jerusalem from the Ottomans and, and set up an administration there in 1917-1918, by complete coincidence, one of Montefiore's nephews was in fact assistant provost general, which means police chief of Jerusalem, but working for the British. And at that time, there was no political tension in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was too exhausted for that. And so his main job as police chief of Jerusalem was to haul Australian squaddies out of the brothels of Jerusalem, of which there were many. And, these, and, and in our family archives, I found all his reports to, to Viscount, Field Marshal Viscount Allenby, who was in charge there. And, um, and he constantly reports on this problem, and Allenby writes back and tells him he's got to stop this disorder. And every, every day he raids another brothel, and he moves the brothels to another part of the city to keep, to keep trying to keep the Australians out. But the Australian soldiers find it, and they're all in there again, and he has to raid it again and arrest them, throw them in the slammer. And he reports all this to Allenby. And then he finally managed to get it under some control. And from then on, he sends a report to Allenby every week. And the report is always identical. It's, it just has, it has four words. It says, to Viscount, Field Marshal Viscount Allenby, um, from Major Seabag Montefiore. And it just says, Jerusalem quiet, VD rampant. <laughs> and so... So the family connection has been undying and not always as wholesome as Samosa's Montefiore's. But I have to say, when I, when I started studying this book and I studied Montefiore, I was very cynical about him because of the reasons I said. When I looked into it and studied him, I realized he was a remarkable man. He often risked his life for Jews all over the world um, to intercede for them in the Damascus affair and other cases. And he was always courageous and I'm proud of that. But when I wrote this book, I didn't want to write a Zionist book. I didn't want to write an anti-Israeli book, a pro-Palestinian book. I didn't want to write a British book or an Armenian book. I wanted to write a book that was as close to the truth as I could, as I could get it, based on, based on scholarship and yet readable, and yet and, and accessible to someone who really didn't know anything about Jerusalem and, in fact, may not even have re re usually read history books. I mean my mother, of course, when I describe that reader. And I wanted to, I wanted to write a book that my mother could read and it would be fun for her to read. And yet it would be based on scholarship with many new sources. And more than that, it would be equal-handed between the two sides. And, in fact, I wanted to write about Jerusalem. One of the fascinating things about Jerusalem is that there aren't just two sides there. One of the tragedies of nationalism is that we now just think of the Israelis and the Palestinians. But in fact, in the 19th century, 
when someone asked the mayor of Jerusalem, one of the Haldi family, one of the great Palestinian families, what nationality he was, he said, I'm, I'm, I have three nationalities. I'm firstly a Jerusalemite. That's my nationality. Secondly, I'm an Arab. And thirdly, I'm an Ottoman. So that's just an example of how complex identity is in Jerusalem. And as you know, there are so many different sects of Jews there, but there are also among Palestinian Arabs, there are Catholics, there are Orthodox, there are Maronites. In the old days, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre wasn't just shared, as it is today, really, between three main, the three main Christian sects, the Armenians, the Latin Catholics, and the Orthodox. Other people had shares of it. The Serbians, the Maronites, the Georgians, as well as the Armenians. So Jerusalem has always been much more complex than it's become today. And that was partly the Jerusalem I wanted to show. But of course, it's a huge challenge. I must admit, I literally barely slept for three years writing this book. Such was the weight of Jerusalem's power. Um, and that's, that's one of the great challenges. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why um, you know, so few people have written a book like this. Now, I'm not saying it's perfect, but I've certainly tried very hard to get it right. I realized this wasn't going to make me popular with every side. Um, I showed, funny enough, I showed the book, the last parts of the book, which go right up to the present to Obama and Netanyahu. I showed it to both Fatah, the PLO, and the Israeli government. And knowing that it would be published in many countries, they both read it, and they both gave me long lists of changes that they thought should be made and corrections. Of course, they didn't correct anything that was in their favor. <laughs> but in the end, of course, it became as complicated as negotiating the Oslo peace accords. And I ripped up their comments and just decided I had to just make these decisions myself on my own. There's a good, there's a good example. I had a, I had a, um, a quote by my, by my desk as I wrote the book. When um, the British took Jerusalem, the first military governor was called Sir Ronald Storrs. And Storrs um, got on quite well with the Jews and the Arabs at first. And then within about two or three months, he'd managed to fall out with both Jews and Arabs. He went to his prime minister, David Lloyd George, the British prime minister, and he said, prime minister, what shall I do? The Jews are complaining, the Arabs are complaining, everyone's complaining about me. And Lloyd George, quick as a flash, said, well, if either side stops complaining, you'll be fired. And I kept this, I kept this quote next to my desk as I wrote the book. Because basically I realized that I, I couldn't, I shouldn't, if any, if any side was too pleased with me, I'd, done it, I'd, I'd screwed up the project. Um, but, but nonetheless, it's a, it's a work of love. And as I said, Jerusalem is a city of obsession. It's the one city in the world that people want to possess absolutely. They don't just want to live in it. And there's a sort of madness that comes over people when they possess Jerusalem. Now, those of you who, who, who've read about Jerusalem will know there's a, there's, a, there's a form of madness, the Jerusalem fever or the Jerusalem syndrome. And in Jerusalem, on the site, ironically, of, the, of Day Asin, the scene of one of the worst atrocities by the Zionists in this case, the, the Arabs also committed appalling atrocities in 47, 48. But in, on the very site of Day Asin, in fact, containing some of the last... Um, houses of the village of, De- of the Palestinian village of Dayasin is a lunatic asylum called the Kafir Shawl Mental Hospital. And this is the world specialist, of course, in the Jerusalem syndrome, the form of madness suffered usually by Christian pilgrims. And 
The, the madness comes because of a disappointment, a decompression, the expectation of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the one city, whether you're secular or religious, you feel like you know it. You feel there's an authentic vision of Jerusalem that you know, even if you've never been. Even in the Middle Ages, all over Europe, when the Crusades were called, for example, 80,000 people believed that they knew Jerusalem, that Jerusalem belonged to them, and left to risk their lives to take Jerusalem in, in 1099. And even today, that's true. All of you, whether religious, whether Jewish, whether Muslim, whether Arab or American, you will feel, even if you've never been to Jerusalem, that somehow you own a little bit of Jerusalem and you know Jerusalem. Well, the Jerusalem syndrome comes when pilgrims visit Jerusalem and they find that instead of this wonderful, white, pristine, marble um, temple city, um, maybe with, with towers, golden towers rising up to the clouds where God with a white beard beams down on, on pilgrims in white robes. No. Those of you who have been to Jerusalem know it's the angriest, messiest, um, dustiest, most tense and most chaotic city on earth. And if you go expecting that vision of Jerusalem, um, a celestial Jerusalem, you'll be disappointed. And that's what happens to the hundred or so people who every year suffer the Jerusalem syndrome in Jerusalem, and they're taken to this asylum. It's the only... I've been there, by the way. And it's the only... Um, it's the only mental hospital in the world where when you go in, if you say Jesus, about four people turn around. And... <laughs> Most of the patients believe that they're either John the Baptist or the Virgin Mary, but there are a few Jesuses there. Particularly the doctor told me, the chief psychiatrist there told me, on millennium year in 2000, there was a huge, huge number of Johns, Marys, and Jesuses there in the hospital. Now, um, as I said, many of the, even the secular rulers, many of the secular rulers have found that reason... They, give, they, they, they are unable to act in a reasonable fashion once they, own, once they rule Jerusalem. And that's happened throughout history. Partly because, as I mentioned at the beginning, the fundamentalist believers in Jerusalem. All three religions, fundamentalist believers, believe that the final days, the end days, judgment day, the second coming, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Mahdi, these things will take place in Jerusalem. When Jesus who was absolutely, absolutely knew the Jewish scriptures extremely well and was determined to fulfill them, and he self-consciously did so. He knew that a prophet like himself, a son of, a son of, um, a son of man, he had to go and preach in Jerusalem if he, was, if he was bringing on and accelerating the kingdom of heaven, by which he meant judgment day. And if this was to happen, it had to happen in Jerusalem. And it was the same for Muhammad and same for the Muslims. They also believe that the hour is nigh, says the Quran. And Muhammad, who was extremely familiar with the Jewish scriptures and the Christian scriptures and revered um, the Jewish prophets and the Christian prophets, including Jesus, as prophets, hence the Muslims called King, and many of the Jewish kings as well, like, for example, King David in, in Muslim scriptures, in Muslim religion is Nabi Daud, Moses, Nabi Musa, and so on. So Muhammad knew that this had to happen in Jerusalem. If, there was, if the hour was nigh, if the kingdom of heaven, if the judgment day was to happen, it had to happen in Jerusalem. And it had to happen outside the Golden Gate, which I think, I don't know if those of you who've been to Jerusalem remember the Golden Gate, 
um, not on the Western Wall, but on the Eastern Wall of the Temple Mount. But that, to me, is the most beautiful, mystical, mysterious building. And that's where it's going to happen. Now, if you believe that this is going to happen in Jerusalem, it has to happen in Jerusalem, it's very difficult to compromise with anybody else about your vision of what will happen in Jerusalem. By the way, what does holiness mean in Jerusalem? What does the holy city mean? The holy city means that Jerusalem, and the Temple Mount particularly, is the ideal setting, the prime venue for man to meet God on earth. That's what holy city means. That's why Jerusalem is so universal and why it's so weighed down with this um, with, with significance and with the power. Now, I also mentioned when I was writing about Jerusalem that um, I wanted to write as near to the truth as you could get. But this, of course, is a huge challenge in a city in which mythology is all important, religious mythology. If you're a religious person, whatever, one of the three great Abrahamic faiths, you will believe absolutely that the word of the Bible, the word of the Quran is God's word. No more argument. But if you're interested in what really happened, or what might have really happened, um, then, then as a historian, that's my interest, then you want to know the facts as well. And that's the great challenge of writing about Jerusalem, because the mythology is as potent as the facts. People die all the time for the mythology. And yet, if you read the book, you'll see that many of the sites are historically incorrect. For example, the Via Dolorosa, along which millions of Christian pilgrims walk every year, is almost certainly not the correct route that Jesus went down. And the same can be said for many Muslim and Jewish sites too. So that's the challenge. A history of Jerusalem has to be both these things. And this is all part of the pressure, the mythology versus reality, that causes the Jerusalem syndrome that I mentioned earlier. Now, at the end of, um, at the end of a very learned paper by psychiatrists from California, I think, but also from Britain and Israel, on the Jerusalem syndrome, published recently in the psychiatric journals, none of which I understood. It's all complete psychobabble. But at the end, it has a very useful section which says, if you're, worried, if you're leading a tour group to Jerusalem of Christian pilgrims and you're worried that a member of the, the group um, is beginning to show, display symptoms of the Jerusalem syndrome, here are five things to look out for. And so it's written in very simple language that even I could understand. And these are the five things. First thing is, if a member of your party starts to clip their nails, their toenails and their fingernails, and fetishistically keep the clippings, it's the first sign. The second one is the same with hair. If they start to shave their body hair and keep the clippings in a fetishistic manner, start to worry. But you don't need to call the hospital yet. The third thing is, watch out for this. If a member of your party starts to fashion a toga-like robe from hotel bed linen, then you have to really start being worried. Number four, if that member of your party now sports, dons the toga-like robe made from hotel bed linen and progresses towards a high place. And five, of course, if they start to give a sermon, usually the Sermon on the Mount, from said high place. Anyway, no joke, that's absolutely, that's, it's actually in this very learned paper, and it gives you an idea of the power of Jerusalem. Now, I think the simplest thing to do, what I'd love to do, is just to give you an introduction. I always do this in my books. I try to start the books, um, and I try to start Jerusalem 
with a scene of great drama that would catch the reader, especially the non-expert reader. But also, for this to work, um, the scene has to have a lot of... You have to have detailed material, otherwise there's, there's nothing to say. And also, it has to be a scene that contains the basic themes of the book. Now, you can read this book as a saga of great conquests and heroes and monsters and whores and princesses and empresses and, and, and all the rest. A saga of great families, monsters like King Herod, um, prophets like Muhammad and Jesus. But also, it's a study of holiness, what, what causes holiness, how holiness develops. And the fascinating thing about the creation of Jerusalem is it's also the destructions that have made it so holy. The two great destructions of the city um, by Titus in 70 AD and by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 are the things that more than anything have intensified the holiness of Jerusalem, ironically, and also created the template of what the apocalypse would be like. Um, and and that's, the, that's one of the ironies. The destruction is as powerful in Jerusalem as the building. So the book is also a study of that, a study of the holiness. And the evolution of Jerusalem is, is complex. On one hand, it's a slow evolution by families, by people living in the city. It's happened very slowly. And holiness has been um, intensified by each successive regime, each successive revelation, each successive holy book, and each successive prophet, adopting, commandeering, adapting borrowing, stealing the holy places and holy stories of their predecessors. And that's the essence of how holiness has developed in Jerusalem. Um, for example, um, almost certainly there was a Canaanite holy, holy shrine of some sort probably on the Temple Mount. The Jews built their temple there. Um, when the Muslims came... And when the Christians came, they each co-opted the stories. The Christians moved many of the Jewish stories from the Temple Mount a few hundred yards to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The Jews had believed that the Garden of Eden, that the center of the world, that Adam's skull was buried, that Abraham had, had sacrificed, almost sacrificed Isaac, and that all these things had taken place on the Temple Mount. Well, the Christians moved these things, hook, line, and sinker, a few hundred yards to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And when the Muslims took Jerusalem in 638 AD, they moved them back to the Church of the Holy, uh, back to the Temple Mount again, and so on and so forth. So this is how holiness has evolved. But it hasn't just evolved. Jerusalem has also been created by the acts, the capricious, single decisions of several men, a handful, probably no more than ten. Many of the names you'll know very well. I've mentioned already. I mean, King David, Solomon, uh, Muhammad, uh, Abdul Malik, the man who built the, uh, the Dome of the Rock and, and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, um, right up to Lloyd George, because the Balfour Declaration should be called the Lloyd George Declaration. It was him that, fought, that really believed in Zionism and that embraced it. So I want to show you one of these moments where a decision really made all the difference. And I want to take you back to 70 AD. And I'm just going to check the time to see how we're doing. We've got a little bit of time. So in 70 AD, picture Jerusalem besieged by the 60,000 Roman legionaries inside the city. 
um, starvation, scenes of death and misery in a crowded city that had as many as 500,000 people in it, probably, probably less, but certainly hundreds of thousands of pilgrims, warlords, Jewish factions, fighters, and all of them now starving after four months of siege by Titus Caesar and his um, legionaries. People walked through the streets and dropped down dead. People buried their, buried their parents and fell into the graves after them. People walked through the streets and looked up at the temple and dropped down dead. No one picked them up anymore. People ate leather. Um, the fighters in the city, it, first of all, they controlled all the food supply, the Jewish fighters, and they went crazy. They drank wine, according to Josephus. They put on makeup and women's clothes. And then they went from house to house, having orgies and searching for food, sometimes eviscerating um, people, searching their very bodies for food. There was cannibalism. Um, they sometimes threw the bodies over the walls. It was a scene, a diabolical scene, that really belongs in a 20th century tragedy, like the siege of Leningrad, for example, or the, siege, or the, or the storming of Berlin in, 40, in 1945. Outside the city walls, another diabolical scene. Um, jackals, wolves feasted on the bodies that had been thrown over the walls. But outside the walls, Titus had ordered that every single Jew who escaped from the city should be crucified. And the legionaries, many of whom were Syrians and Greeks who lived in Palestine themselves and hated the Jews with all that real venomous hatred of intimate neighbours. And when they, when they crucified the Jews, they, um, they crucified them upside down in obscene postures. And of course, everyone was crucified naked. That goes without saying. So as they crucified them... 500 Jews escaped a day. 500 Jews were crucified on the hills around the old city of Jerusalem. The scene was like a forest of cadavers, um, groaning or drying out as their bodies dried out in the bright sun. Terrible, terrible scene. And it was worse, because the Jews who were escaping from the city often swallowed their gold. And when the Roman legionaries discovered this, they gutted the people alive and sifted through their intestines. Don't walk out. <laughs> they sifted through their intestines to find the gold. Now, in the end, um, Titus realized that he had to storm the city, and he ordered the storming. First of all, he stormed the first two outer walls. The Jews st- fought back. He stormed them again. And then it came to the, the Temple Mount itself, the wall around the Temple Mount. When he took the Antonia Fortress, he reduced the fortress, but he lived himself in one of the towers. And from there, he commanded the siege. He ordered that they should light the gates of the the temple. Now, you've got to visualize the temple. The temple and Jerusalem at this time was at its most majestic in all of its history, right up until today. Um, It would have been built by King Herod the Great, the most extraordinary um, tyrant and aesthete in a way, for his buildings were the most beautiful buildings in the East. He was, he was a monster, of course. He killed three of his own sons. He killed his favorite wife, Queen Mariam. He had her garroted, almost certainly. And when, she, when he had her killed for treason, because she was a Maccabee, she was a princess of the royal family of, um, of the Jews, while he was a self-made Idumean Jewish mongrel. So he married her. It was a great marriage. They loved each other. They hated each other. And her treason and her plots against him drove him almost mad. And in the end, he ordered her to be executed, his beloved wife. And it's said that afterwards he went mad with with grief and regret. 
He searched his palaces, shouting for her. He pretended she was still alive. And the Talmud says that, he, um, that, he, that she was preserved in honey, and her body was preserved in honey. And that fits in with the way that he would go and see her. And the, and the, the mixture of sweetness and viciousness captures the nature of their relationship and the nature of this extraordinary man, Herod, who built, who rebuilt the second temple in the most glorious way possible and made a majestic Jerusalem. It took him 60 years. He wasn't even alive when it was finished. It took 60 years to build the second temple. And what, it wasn't just a temple. Of course, the Holy of Holies was just a small building with an altar outside it, almost certainly on the rock that is today within the Dome of the Rock. But in fact, the temple was itself um, a, a, a palace, a fortress, a stronghold, enormous, chock-a-block with storerooms and archives and treasures from all over the Jewish world, gold and veils and silks and, and um, panelled in cedar and pine. Now, this was what they were storming. This is what Titus was now storming. And as he did so, he said to his, his legionaries, according to Josephus, who was in his... Who was in his um, entourage? And in fact, it's interesting that Titus's entourage had many Jews in it. Among them, King Herod Agrippa II, the young Jewish king, the great grandson of King Herod the Great himself, and not only him, but Queen Berenice, Herod Agrippa's sister, the most one of the most beautiful and wealthy women in the whole Roman Empire. The Romans didn't like her, of course. They called her the Jewish Cleopatra, not a compliment, and. She was the mistress of Titus Caesar himself. In other words, she would see the destruction of Jerusalem, the city built by her great-grandfather, and she would see it from the bed of its destroyer. And also in the entourage was Josephus. Now, Josephus had been a priest in the temple. He'd been a general in the Jewish revolt against the Romans. And when he was captured by Vespasian, the general in charge, and um, his son Titus, he said, hang on a sec, before you send me to Rome to be killed by Nero, I've got to tell you something just for you two. So they sent everybody out, and they said, what is it? And Josephus, who was extremely shrewd, said, I've had a vision, and the vision is that you, Vespasian, will be emperor of the world very soon. So Vespasian thought about this, and he said, we'll keep this one. <laughs> and he put him in a jail, and a few months later, he was indeed hailed by the legions as emperor of Rome. He went to Rome, and he left Titus, to, um, to continue the war against the Jews and to take Jerusalem. And Titus freed Josephus, gave him the name Flavius Josephus after their own family, the imperial family's name. And they were in that. So the entourage was full of Jews who were, who were now about to storm Jerusalem. And as he went, Titus went to sleep. He said, light, light the gates, and then we're going to storm it in the morning. Well, according to Josephus, um, the fire spread very quickly. The gates were golden. And everything in, inside was like a, was like a, was in, it, was an, it was an infernal treasure chest that could light so easily. And the fire spread incredibly quickly. And Titus was awoken and told that the, the temple was on fire. The Romans charged in. The fighting was brutal. Tens of thousands of Jews died fighting around the altar and the Holy of Holies. But the fight went on. And at one point in the fighting, as the fire spread, the gold melted and the molten gold formed a river through the temple, spreading the fire from building to building. And all around, meanwhile, Roman cavalry charged in. The Jewish fighters fought desperately. Thousands were killed. The Romans went berserk. They burnt thousands of Jewish women and children to death. 
and on went the fight. In this incredible scene from hell, Titus and his entourage, almost certainly with his entourage, Josephus, probably with his mistress and possibly with the Jewish king, Herod Agrippa II, entered the temple and went to see what was in the Holy of Holies. Now, pagans were always fascinated. What was in the Holy of Holies? Was there a golden ram's head? And they always suspected the Jews were worshipping something in there. But all the pagans, and not many had seen inside, but all of the pagans who did see inside, Pompey the Great, earlier Roman general, had seen inside in 63 BC. They were impressed because inside was virtually nothing except the awesome power of the Jewish God. But he was pulled away. The fire was getting out of control. And Titus was pulled back by his entourage. The fighting went on. Josephus says that it was a terrible, terrible moment to see the greatest city on earth, the city he loved, the Jewish holy city, burning in agony, the destruction of that city. He said there was a terrible moment when the flames rose so high, the clatter of the Roman cavalry, the, the clashing of steel as the Romans fought the Jews, the screaming of women and children, the cries of the dying, the slither of blood. He said, and at that moment, the great stones of the temple, and Herod built with stones that some of them were 200 tons, 50 feet long. You can see them in the Jerusalem tunnels now. Some of you may have done so. And he said there was a terrible moment when some of these stones grew so hot, they cracked. And it was a terrible sound that could be heard all the way to the mountains of Moab across the Jordan. So that, there fell Jerusalem. And soon afterwards, Titus ordered its total destruction, including the destruction of the temple. And those of you who've been to Jerusalem will have seen the stones that the Roman soldiers pushed off the Temple Mount and which landed on the street below. Recently, they found coins, golden coins, in the shop, in, under a shop threshold in that street but near the Western Wall. And... Somebody in Jerusalem, a Jerusalemite, thought that day that he'd hide his money and he'd come back and collect it later. But no one came back to collect their money. And among the, uh, the, the archaeologists have found burnt houses, ashes, and, the, and the, forearm, the forearm of a woman, skeleton, on the threshold of a house. Virtually everybody in Jerusalem was either killed or, or sold into slavery. They used, the Romans used the courts of the, of the Temple Mount to gather the women and to sell them. Many Jews were forced to fight to the death. And, of course, you know about the triumph and um, the great arch of Titus in, in um, Rome. So why am I telling this story other than the fact that it's a hell of a story? This was the moment, in effect, when the three great Abrahamic religions were made possible. For Judaism, this was the end of the old temple Judaism, based upon worship in the temple, based upon the sacrifice of animals, doves, sheep, um, oxen at the, um, at, the, uh, at the altar outside the Holy of Holies. From henceforth, Judaism changed and became based on the Torah, which became, as, as it was said, a sort of portable Jerusalem. They had to. They were banned from Jerusalem after this for many centuries, and up until the Arab conquest almost. So for the Judaism, it was the beginning of the Judaism that we know today. For Christianity, early on, in the siege, it was said that the small sect, the Jewish sect of Jewish Christians, the Nazarenes, left Jerusalem. And right up until this point, even though St. Paul had, during the 60s and 50s, traveled around the Mediterranean, converting Gentiles and Greeks to Judaism, the fact was that um, Judaism remained 
a Jewish sect still worshipping and accepted in the temple. But now they left Jerusalem early in the siege before the lines closed. And this was really the moment when Christianity separated forever from the mother religion. And for Islam, 600 years away, but Islam too was made possible by the destructions, not just this destruction in 70, but also the 586 destruction. For Muhammad believed and he told his followers that this was the moment when the, when the, when, which proved that God had withdrawn his blessing from the Jews. The first revelation was dead. And now was the time for the final revelation of the messenger of God himself, Muhammad the prophet. And so, in a sense, this is the moment that, that modern, the three great Abrahamic religions became the way they are today. So let me finish by saying this. Jerusalem remains absolutely central to the world today for the reasons that I've talked about. And though we don't know what will happen with the Israel-Palestine conflict, with Iran versus America, with the Arab Spring, with the Palestinian bid for um, statehood at the United Nations. We do know that in all three religions, Jerusalem will be the setting for Judgment Day and the Apocalypse. So whatever else happens, ladies and gentlemen, it will all end in Jerusalem. Thank you very much. During the period of the British Mandate, what, in your opinion, was the most important contribution made by the British? Is that a trick question? <laughs> That's a nice question. Um, I think, you know, I mean, I don't think the British covered themselves in glory in Jerusalem, in fact. Um, I mean, I personally don't, I mean, I, I think that they, they came with the best intentions and, and, and um, they certainly did a lot for the buildings in Jerusalem, but the way they left was disastrous. And it was their leaving that was their greatest failure. Basically what happened um, was that in, in 1946, 47, they simply lost the will to control much of their empire. In, in, they left India disastrously. And you have to see Palestine in exactly the same way as that. Um, they just made a run for it. And they left totally irresponsibly in an unforgivable manner. And that, that I'm afraid, is their biggest responsibility, their biggest achievement, or un, you know, lack of achievement in Jerusalem. Because it formed the situation that is there today. I think one interesting point that I'd like to make is that I don't believe that anything that ha has happened up to today is inevitable. And I don't think, um, we were talking about this earlier, there has constantly been the ability in Jerusalem for, the, for, the char for, for characters, for individuals to change the history. It's a huge series of missed opportunities. It didn't have to end or come to the situation that we're in today. And even, I mean, just to throw out one small thing, in 1939, for example, the British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain decided to reverse completely the Balfour Declaration and the, the pro-Zionist policy. And he offered the Mufti of Jerusalem, uh, Haj Amin al-Husseini, he, um, he invited him, he, he was in exile, but he invited his party and all the Jewish, the Jewish and um, Palestinian factions to St. James's Palace to a conference. And he basically offered them, in 1939, he offered um, a Palestinian independence within 10 years with limited Jewish 
um, immigration, to, which would stop after five years, and with no Jewish state whatsoever. Now, the Palestinians had, and, and the Mufti Jerusalem contemptuously turned down this offer, which is very interesting because, of course, if they'd accepted it, history would be completely different. Just as in 1947, if the UN, um, if the UN plan had been actually enforced as probably it should have been. There would have been a Palestinian state, a Jewish state, and Jerusalem would now be a United Nations um, entity run by the United Nations. What do you think the future is um, in, in terms of social, political, and economic um, grounds? That's the billion-dollar question. Well, you know, the fascinating thing about Jerusalem is that no one's ever able to predict anything that happens there. No, one's pre no one predicted the Arab Spring, um, and, um, and so I'd be insane to predict anything. But I do see various, various possible... I mean, of course, one possibility is that nothing happens, and it just remains exactly pretty much the same for, for decades. Um, I can see a shared Jerusalem. I can see various deals. After all... Um, you know, the, the, the deals between Israel and Palestinians are pretty well... You know, the, the actual um, para parameters of these deals are pretty much known already, with give or take a few Jewish settlements. Um, so that's not impossible. But I have to say, I have to wonder and question whether Jerusalem will actually exist in 40 years' time in the way that it exists today. You know, at the beginning I said that I feel that the, the weight of and the intensity of the desires for possession of all the three great faiths the increasing um, fundamentalism um, among all the religions, but obviously the Christian, the Christian part of Jerusalem is shrinking all the time. So between the Muslims and the, between the Palestinians and the Israelis, between the Muslims and the Jews, I wouldn't be surprised if some fanatics blow up in some way um, and destroy the centre of Jerusalem. And I wonder if Jerusalem will be there and will there for us to see in 40 years' time. Though one thing is certain. The, the more, if, it, if it ever was destroyed, and after all, the Temple Mount, as you know, is just one structure, but if it ever was destroyed, it would only increase the intensity of the sanctity of the city. Opinion, who is the most interesting figure in the history of Jerusalem? What a lovely question. Um, gosh, I mean, I mean, I've tried to answer that question, but it's taken me 600 pages. But, I mean, I think Herod the Great, who I mentioned, is one of the most fascinating. Um, I think, um, of course, King David is one of the most intriguing, though we know so little about him. Um, I love some of the writers. Um, I love Josephus. I think he's the greatest war historian um, who's ever written right up to the present day. I think he's the greatest war reporter that's ever existed. Um, I think Yevlia Chalebi, the Ottoman travel writer, who, who is the greatest travel writer of all of history, who we, we don't read very much because he's in Turkish. And he's very... He's, I think what his work is absolutely fascinating and often hilarious. You know, when he writes um, about Islam, he writes in a way... He was a Sufi himself and an Ottoman courtier. Um, and... And he wrote about Islam in a way that you'd be killed if you wrote today. No, no, no Muslim today would dare write about it in the way that he wrote. But in the 17th century, um, this Ottoman Muslim writer closely connected to the Sultan Caliph in Constantinople could write in this extraordinary way. 
Um, so there are many great writers in the book as well. I think Constantine the Great is an extraordinary character. I think Lloyd George is an extraordinary character. Herzl. Um, there are so many. Moshe Dayan. Um, I think Abdul Malik, the caliph that built the, um, the, the Dome of the Rock and Al-Aqsa, is, is a fascinating character. And Muawiyah, the caliph who started, probably built the first Muslim mosque on the Temple Mount, is a, is a wonderful, lovable character too. If I could come back as anybody, I'd come back as an Umayyad um, caliph, I think. They really knew how to live. So I hope in the book you'll find lots of fun characters. In the modern old city of Jerusalem, it's broken down into four quarters. The Jewish quarter, the Christian quarter, the Arab quarter, and the Armenian quarter. Could you give a little more insight into the Armenian quarter? I feel like it's a little undervalued in the whole scheme of it. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the Armenian Armenian story is is gripping. Um, The Armenians, the reason why the Armenians have such an important part in Jerusalem and why they have such a big share of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, for example, is because each of the great powers from the 17th century onwards backed one of the sects in Jerusalem. The Russians um, backed the Orthodox, the the French and the, the Austrians and the Spanish backed the Catholics. And... The Ottomans had their own candidate, but they, even though even the Ottoman Sultan was a Muslim monarch, he had his own Christian sect, um, and that was the that was the Armenians. So that's why the Armenians are so important, essentially, in Jerusalem. In a nutshell, it's fascinating because the Armenians have their own culture there, and there's even an Armenian dialect with Armenian words that are peculiar to Jerusalem. So that's why the Armenians are so big, but also because. Um, the Armenians were one of the, Armenia was one of the first countries to convert to Christianity. They were therefore one of the first countries to start to send um, uh, pilgrims. They were one of the pioneers of monasticism in Jerusalem. And um, in, the, in the Crusades, I mean, one of the great characters in the book, and I mentioned that there are many great women who made Jerusalem, or I meant to mention that. Um, one of the great women was Queen Melisend, the crusader queen, the Margaret Thatcher of the Crusades. And she, um, she, was half, she was half French, like most of the Crusaders, and half Armenian. And she brought many Armenians back to Jerusalem. And so that's why the Armenian quarter became so important, because of the Crusades, because of the monasticism, because of the early conversion, and, um, and, and because of Melisend, and because of the Sultan's promotion of the Armenians. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.